Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You may know Stephen Ranella as an expert hunter and the host of the Meat Eater series on Netflix, as well as the Meat Eater podcast. He's also an author, and his latest book is The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. Today on the show, we'll talk about the subjects behind both these projects, being with how Steve found his way into hunting and conservation advocacy, how he explains and makes the case for hunting to those who are unfamiliar with it, and the benefits that hunting has brought into his life. We then discuss how the barrier for beginners to get into hunting is perceived as being higher than it really is, and the more accessible way Steve recommends getting started. From there, we turn to the kind of know-how you should possess for undertaking any kind of outdoor pursuit, whether it's hunting, camping, or hiking. Steve shares why he recommends creating an outdoors kit that you can grab for any expedition and what exactly to pack in it. He then offers suggestions on outdoor clothing and sleeping pads, as well as the pros and cons of carrying one's water in a camelback-style bladder versus a Nalgene bottle and why he favors the latter. We also get into Steve's recommendations for a better alternative to GPS and the importance of regular practice for first aid and all these wilderness skills that we talk about. And we end our conversation with Steve's approach to getting his kids into the outdoors. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash outdoors. All right, Stephen Ranella, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the chance. So you are the host of Meat Eater on Netflix, the Meat Eater podcast, the author of several books. You got a new one out, which we're going to talk about today, The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Survival. But before we do, let's talk about your background, because you become an advocate for hunting, conservation, being out in the outdoors. How did that get started? Like, When did you start hunting? Have you always been hunting since you were you know, knee-high to a, a grasshopper? Yeah, I don't even remember you know, starting to hunt, because my dad was a big hunter. He he was, he was kind of unusual as a hunter in that, you know, typically you'll see hunting kind of flow from father to son, but my dad was raised for the most part, raised by his grandparents who were Italian immigrants. And he was raised in the South side of Chicago. Like they spoke Italian in the home. They didn't know hunting. You know, they, they had no concept of hunting, but he went off and fought in world war two he had me when he was pretty old, you know, so my dad's like a World War II vet, but he went off and fought World War II. When he got back from World War II, he got very, very into hunting, as did a lot of guys in that era. There were as many hunters then in the years following World War II as there are now. And, and so I was just brought up in it, you know, fishing, hunting, trapping, all since a very early age. I mean, I know when I killed my first deer, you're right, but other things like just getting started out hunting, I have no, I don't remember it at all. It happened before I can remember. I mean, so it sounds like this was like, it's something that brought your family together, not only you and your dad, but your brothers too. Very much so. Very much so. In, in fact, without that, without that shared bond, without that shared connection, I really don't know what they're, you know, I don't mean, I don't want to like, dis, I'm trying not trying to like disparage my family in some way, but I guess I can't say. Maybe something would have filled it in. I can say this. Without that shared connection, without that bond, it's hard for me to picture what the bond would have become. You know, it was just like a thing we did together to the extent where if like when I was little, if my dad and brothers were going to go out hunting or fishing or whatever, and I didn't go, I would get a guilty conscience. Like I would feel like I was doing something bad by not going. It was that meaningful. 
So, I mean, you've been, yeah, so you've been hunting since you were a kid and it was just something you did for fun, but you've turned it into a career and your latest iteration is you become sort of an advocate for hunting and connecting that with being an advocate for conservation. I mean, how did you find yourself becoming an advocate for hunting and why did you think hunting needed an advocate? Yeah, I'll back up to like an earlier part of your question. Like you say, like did it for fun. It's like, it's fun, but, and was fun. But man, it's just more than that. You know, it almost kind of like trivializes it because oftentimes it's not fun. Like, you know, I remember being out all the time and crying because I was so cold. It wasn't fun. It was like a compulsion or like a deep, deep passion. You know, it's hard to, but yeah, we can go with it. But it just didn't, it often didn't feel that way. It felt like something different, like something that needed to be done, you know. And advocacy, I don't know. I, I got interested in writing at an early age and wanted to be an outdoor writer and, and was trained to encourage to write what I knew about. And so I naturally began writing about what I knew most about, which was the outdoors. I guess the role of advocacy, I didn't view it like, I didn't say like, I want to advocate for this. I just wanted to explain it, right? And, and capture my relationship with it. I, I think that it wound up being that my explanation was perhaps compelling to people and it served the purpose of advocacy, but it wasn't intended to be advocacy. Like I never felt like I had a sort of cross to bear, right. By going out and, and advocating for something. It wasn't that it was just like explaining my world. Right. And in explaining my world, it served the purpose of advocacy, though. That was not my intention. So why do you feel you need to explain it? Is it because, you know, hunting's less common today? I mean, there's 11 million hunters today. That's a lot. It seems like a lot, but that as many as we had in the 1950s, but the population's bigger today. So hunting's less common. I think that the percentage of population part winds up making it seem scarce, right? But I got a friend, Pat, uh, he's a writer, Pat Dirk, and I've quoted him on this a hundred times. Pat Durkin once said, like of his area in Wisconsin, where he's from Wisconsin, he said, you either are a deer hunter or you sleep with one. <laughs> so I think that there are like communities, you know, where it's just, it, it's just like there's communities where it's a real part of life. Every household, like when I was growing up, not every, virtually every household had a hunter in it, in my area. So I never had a percept, there was no perception in my mind of scarcity, you know, it, it just, it, you know, cause, cause you don't grow up that way. Like if you grew up in a city, you might think, Jesus, there's no hunters around. Right. But for me, that's not how it feels. Where I live now, like, I mean, where I live now, like, if I point around to the houses around me, I'd be like, that dude hunts, that dude hunts, that dude hunts, you know? So it's, it just depends on where you're at. So I grew up like very immersed in that. And, and, and I've, I've then since lived in places where it doesn't go on at all. And absolutely, man, like living, I, I spent time, I spent time living in New York. I spent time living in Seattle. There, you wind up where you feel like a total, oddball and i think that that feeling like an oddball probably changes how you talk about what you do but early on when i was a kid growing up and even when i was in college and like everybody i hung out with hunted i didn't feel there was anything that needed to be explained maybe because everybody already knew it and then you open out to like the broader world and you're like oh yeah man there are places where it's just not but there are also you gotta understand like for most people that grew up hunting you know like i said grew up hunting because their dad did which is pretty typical that's just kind of how it flows people that grew up hunting because their dad did they don't 
for the most part, I don't think that they feel misunderstood because it's around them. Yeah. You know? So when you, like, when you moved to, like, New York, you, you did a stint in New York. Yeah. And you expl- try to explain to people what you did. You, you know, you said you, you had to change the way you explained. Like, what did you do? Like, how did you explain or try to explain what you did to Because you got to back York? all the way up to step one. I would meet people in New York who were pleasantly surprised to learn that there was a regulatory structure. Pleasantly surprised to learn that there's this system by which you have state wildlife agencies that manage wildlife in the state and that they have teams of biologists who do population work to find out how many animals are out there, where they live, whether they're increasing or decreasing in number. And they draw up harvest plans to find like what a sustainable harvest would be and how to meet population objectives. And that they have a licensing system where people pay to buy a license and that money that they pay to buy a license goes to fund the wildlife agency that manages the wildlife and that they have seasons, meaning set dates at which you can pursue these animals and bag limits. People who are like, oh, no shit, really? You know, something that you would take to be that you, you, you take to be like, well, why would I ever need to tell you that? Like, everybody knows this, but everybody doesn't know that. And so then it's just like explanation. And again, remember I said earlier, the advocacy kind of happens by accident. You're just answering a question, like, how does it work, right? And when you tell people how it works, it puts their mind at ease because they thought it was just some kind of like rapacious slaughter that had no rhyme or reason to it. They thought you just go in the woods and start shooting stuff, you know? And then when you explain like, no, no, here's how it works in this country. Like we have this thing, we have this thing that we like to call the North American model of wildlife conservation. And here's what that is. Here's what that looks like. And then you explain it and they're like, oh, I feel a lot better about it now, you know? So winds up being advocacy, but it, but it's it's um it's just like explanation. Like there's not a lot that needs to be hidden. You know, there's not a lot of like dirty secrets, right? It's just kind of how that stuff works. And so I I found myself needing to explain it more from the ground up, explain it for an uneducated audience. The same way, let's say you grew up in New York and you use the subway system. Okay. And you'd always use the subway system and you take, used to take the subway to elementary school, right? You probably don't spend a lot of time. Like you just, you just understand how it works. And then someone like me comes and I'm like, ah, man, I can't like, it's just baffling to me. Everything about it, like how to go, where to go, what line goes, where the mistakes not to make. Everyone knows you should never get on that one at that time. Right. And someone has to just explain it from the ground up, something they take for granted it's quite similar and their interest or knowledge about hunting maybe was as much as mine about subways just wasn't something I gave any thought to. And it, to them, it's like a big part of life and it's a thing that they follow and have interest in. So that was a thing that happened. And that probably like really had an impactful change in how I talked about what I talked about once I understood the knowledge gap. Yeah. So showing people who aren't familiar with hunting, I mean, the role, I mean, everyone wants to conserve wildlife that everyone, that's something people, I think in America, particularly with our, we've been blessed with like just these wonderful natural resources, fantastic environment. People want to support that. And when they see how hunting plays a role in that conservation, it puts them at ease with the, with the lifestyle or the practice. I, I think that, yeah, I, I think there are parts of it, you know, and I would, I, I don't think that everyone in this country wants to preserve wildlife, but I, I think you could say like generally that's true. People, I think everyone will pay lip service to that. Sure. As long as it's remains good for the economy. 
But I think that's the thing we like to think about ourselves. But there's a lot of cases where when the rubber meets the road, it's just not the reality. But yeah, I think we like to think that. And I, I think that, you know, I got a friend that did some work one time. He's a social scientist and he did some work on taking people who were adversarial to hunting and giving them pieces of information and then sort of like measuring what impact the information had on their viewpoints and the regulatory structure and the funding structure were things that changed their viewpoint. One thing that hunters love to talk about, and it's it's just kind of silly that we still do it, is hunters love to like, <laughs> they love to justify their actions based on this idea that if it wasn't for hunters, like uh, we'd be overrun with deer, you know, or we need to keep the populations in check, you know. It's just like a knee-jerk thing that people go to. Um, and, and it's funny because once you start looking into that, it's just like very complicated, not really that accurate. And when you try that out, when you try that logic out on people who are adversarial to hunting, it doesn't move the needle. Like they don't buy it, right? They they they, they don't see that the good thing that hunters do is remove animals in order to balance ecosystems like they, they just don't see it that way and and when you explain that to them they don't buy it but do they buy like say well, if you explain to them the way that wildlife departments are funded in all states it's it's through yeah. hunting license yeah that, that winds up being impactful yeah. they're like oh okay yeah. cool dig it in the same way with like rules like regulatory structures like here's how we run the whole program so like oh i got it i can see that you know but you go like if we didn't kill all these deer, you wouldn't be able to leave your house. We'd be so overrun with deer. It'd be a, you know, that doesn't mayhem, that, right? That People doesn't like, land. Yeah, I don't know about yeah, that. That doesn't land. <laughs> well, so besides the role hunting can play in conservation and wildlife management, game management, I mean, you also talk a lot about the benefits that hunting can bring people personally. And you talk about this in your work too, like what hunting has done for you. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, it was something that connected you and your family. But beyond that, like what else? do you think hunting can do for people? Like, why do people go and hunt? Like, what is it, I don't know, individual level, what draws people yeah, to I hunt? Never, I never, ever prescribe hunting. Like, I never say, to, I would never say to somebody, I'd never say like, hey man, you know, I know you don't think you need to go and I know you think that you don't want to go, but what you need to do is go hunting. Like, I never say that to anybody. I think it's like, if if you're compelled to do it, right? And it's the thing you want to go do and want to go try, knock yourself out. But I would never go to someone and say like, you might not realize like the same way, you know, you could have some guy like, you know, total lazy ass out of shape, eats junk food all day long. Right. And you'd say, man, you know what you need to do, dude, you need to start exercising and you need to clean your diet up. Right. I would go and like offer that to somebody if I felt that they needed it. I never go to people and be like, what you need to do is go kill a deer. What I do do is I like, you know, explain what it's brought to me and like what my experience has been and what the experience of others has been. But I don't, I don't think it's the kind of thing where you would come and tell someone that they ought to go do it. What it's brought to me is like, I just, for me personally, I like to have a very intimate hands-on relationship with nature and my like uh, a through line in my life has been that interaction with nature 
It's like, it's how I like to eat. It's how I like to spend my time. It's how I like to raise my kids. Like I see a tremendous amount of value in it. There's a reality to it, right? There's a pragmatism to it. I like being self-sufficient. You know, there's very little in life that we kind of like take charge of anymore. You know, there's a thing I've brought up a handful of times that people would be, we're, we're very, we live in a very specialized society now, right? Like you don't process your own raw sewage. Most people don't fix their own car. Fewer and fewer people change their oil. You probably didn't build your house. I know there's many, many exceptions, but generally you didn't build your own house. Like we farm out, you know, we, we, we like hand out all of our obligations to other people. And then we focus on some little subset of subset of activities. And it makes this whole like society and civilization work. The thing about hunting is it gives you a really intimate control over something, which is food, where you actually can have the experience of like running A to Z on a process. And I think that there's a lot of value in that, like in, in seeing something through from start to finish. And that's the thing I like about it, you know, and like, there's nothing more sort of elemental than food, right? That's why I like to grow food in the garden and I like to hunt for food and fish for food. It's just one of those areas where I'm like, you know what? Like, I'll take this one over. Like, I'll handle this one from the ground up. And that brings a real sense of purpose. And every time I sit down I'm to, to, to eat with my family and eat with my kids and we're eating game, there's, there's like a real sense of value there. There's a relationship with what's on the plate that I, I simply don't feel when I go to a restaurant or when I eat grocery store meat. That's where the value is for me. And when you talk to other hunters, is that kind of the same thing you found across the board or people hunt for different reasons? Camaraderie is huge. A lot of people, they don't admit it, but bragging rights is big. Like they find a world in which they can find approval. You know, I know a lot of guys that like, they're, they're very wasteful of game and they'd be more wasteful if they could get away with it. Right. But more and more it's becoming like socially, it's becoming untenable to be a game waster. But there are a lot of game wasters out there. There's a lot of people that hunt, man, that they'll tell you, oh yeah, I hunt for the meat, but they don't, you know, they just really don't. It's kind of a, it's like a thing. They, they give it lip service. They lie about it. And then and, and there's people that, that I'm familiar with that they, they hunt for social approval, you know, like they value the opinions of other hunters and they, they enjoy hunting. They think it's fun, but kind of like a motivating factor is whatever drive, you know, whatever pushes a person to get a convertible Corvette and have people see them in it, you know, like they, they, they want to be perceived away. And, and that's a thing too, but that's, an, that's true of every pursuit every discipline you have that but the people that i you know choose to spend my time with all have a deep deep reverence for the food and a reverence for the skill set you know it's good it, it feels good to be good at something especially when something that you can never you can you can never master it i don't care how long you do it you just wind up learning things that you don't you just learn where your gaps are the more you do it there's there's no end there's no there's no perfection you can't even approach it. You know, there's just too much knowledge out there to try to gain. And chasing that knowledge is is good because you can't beat it. I mean, you know, I one day I was watching uh dudes bowling on TV, like a bowling, whatever you call it, tournaments and bowling. I remember thinking, man, it's like it kind of shocked me that that 
you wouldn't eventually get because it's a controlled environment. There's no weather, you know, and the lane doesn't change. It's the same width, same length. I remember being like, how could it not be that you'd eventually get where you could just get a strike every time? Like it seemed like a shallow pursuit, you know, like a shallow pursuit. There's this is like not a ton to it. And hunting and fishing and stuff, man, they're just like infinitely deep. Yeah, it's a you talk you call it a practice for guys who are listening to this and they said, well, I've always they they have that that compulsion they want to go hunt right something that draws them to the sport or to the practice, but it, I mean hunting can have it's a high barrier of entry because you got to you gotta know where it lands at. There's like a whole bunch of information you got to know. There's money like you know, license tags, uh, equipment. So so guys listening they want it, they they think they would have an interest in it. Like what's the best way to get started and kind of overcome that high barrier of entry that hunting often has? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I've even said the same thing in the past. I've I've sort of like put that I've I've articulated that high barrier of entry, but man, I don't know if I more and more I don't know how much I believe it because I just kind of look at when we were like when we were kids. I don't know that we had a barrier to entry. We had like pellet guns, you know. Someone gave us a pellet gun for Christmas, and those little plastic boxes of Crossman pellets, and we went out and hunted squirrels, hardcore. And we didn't have like clothes for it, you know. We didn't have like special clothes. So I, I hear that, and I think for some people it is a barrier of entry. What I think is we created a barrier of entry is we created a barrier of entry around how we've how the community has defined success so you know the most hunted for thing is not the most hunted for in terms of man hours spent the most hunted for critter is white-tailed deer you know and we've kind of built this idea that like oh you know that you want to get a big buck right like a, a big white-tailed buck that's something people want is that hard to get that's hard to get that can be expensive to get if that's what we're defining, like what success is, I can see how you'd wind up with it being a high barrier of entry. But you, if you kind of divorce yourself from what success based on magazines and TV shows and stuff looks like, and just measured it as success as being like, you went out and procured a meal. Okay. You went and, and procured a dinner. I don't think there's a high barrier of entry to go do that. Meaning to go hunt small game, okay? To get a rabbit, to get a squirrel, whatever. Like it, it's, it feels to me not high. So I think it's a high barrier of entry to participate at the level that people see through shows such as my own. But in general, I don't see it. But if I was going to give someone advice about it, the advice I give would actually contradict how we went about it ourselves. Like when we moved out west and started hunting in the west, we just figured it out, man. We didn't find anybody local. No one showed us anything. I mean, I'm telling you, man, no one taught us anything when me and my brother started hunting in the mountains, right? And no one, and our dad taught us some things about hunting where we weren't, but we just figured a lot of stuff out. I think you need to be really comfortable with trial and error and you need to be comfortable with the idea of failure. We would have times in the winter, we'd go out and hunt squirrels and rabbits in December and January. If we got one or two, if three of us got one or two, it was a good day. We didn't care about we weren't afraid of failing. I, I think getting comfortable with the fact that you're entering a thing that is going to take a long time and that's the point. If you're comfortable with that, I think you're ready to go. If you want to be that you're going to walk out the door on a Friday and kill something on a Saturday and, and it's going to be big enough to like, you know, blow up your social media feed. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's hard work. You know, that takes a lot. 
So yeah, I mean, maybe, let me not lower expectations. Well, yeah, maybe it is kind of lower expectations, right? It's like, it's okay to start off small. It's still hunting. You can still, you can still eat a squirrel. You can still eat rabbit. And you're still practicing those skills that maybe eventually will lead you to go hunt a whitetail or... Yeah, it depends what your ultimate goals are, you know? If your goal is just really like personal, right? I would ignore... If your goal is personal just to get started and figure something out, I would ignore the way in which the hunting community measures success, you know? And I would just like set your own parameters, man. And I would find people that share... It's a hell of a lot more fun to go into this with someone and find like-minded people and set your own rules for what you want to accomplish and just keep it enjoyable. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So let's talk about this. I think a good transition to your latest book. Cause like not only do you explain hunting, which in turn, you know, indirectly turns into advocacy, but you're a big, you want people to get outdoors and enjoy the outdoors. And this latest book is all about how to survive in the outdoors. But it's, it's what I like about it is your approach to it was, wasn't, is very realistic. You try to avoid the romanticism that people sometimes associate with wilderness survival yeah, and, and yeah. make it really approachable and, and applicable so when you when you first started conceiving this book, like what what kind of what sort of myths of wilderness survival were you hoping to debunk or avoid with your guide to being in the outdoors? Oh yeah, I just got a little bit, you know. To be honest with me, I got like a little played out with sort of the fantasy aspect of survival, you know, with like reality shows and this kind of idea that you're going to be, you know, stranded on a deserted island with nothing but a giant Bowie knife. And I just wasn't really interested in that, but I was very interested in wilderness skills. You know, the book's called like, The Meteor Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival, and wilderness skills is first for a reason. In doing the book, it's like me and the, you know, the folks I work with, we have many, many, many decades worth of experience of like being productive outdoors, okay? So in doing the book, I wanted to make like a very good manual a big information dump for people who don't try to run away from the woods. You know, it's not like, Oh, you're stuck in this dangerous place and you need to get out of here in a hurry, but rather people that run toward the woods that run toward wilderness, a manual and guidebook for them to like be effective and be safe and develop a good sort of cockiness when they're outdoors. We go like, you know, doing a TV show as a reporter and writer, like I spend a lot of time going into the wilderness, going into the mountains, going into the woods, the swamps, whatever, with an objective in mind. Like there's a thing I'm trying to do, whether I'm going there because I'm trying to like take my kids out hunting, whether we're going there because we're making a show, like we're going out to do something, to experience something or see something. How do you do that effectively and avoid trouble? So in, in survival, I mean, not like, it's not just like, what do you do when the chips are down and everything's gone bad, but how do you just like conduct yourself? Meaning, what is the mindset that expert outdoorsmen have? What is the skill set they have? And what's the toolkit they carry? And all the chapters, you can kind of get a sense for the book if you, if you pay attention to how the chapters in the book flow, where if you take the water chapter, for instance, all the chapters flow like best case scenario to worst case scenario, right? So the water chatter begins like car camp and how much water do you bring? How do you transport it? How do you bring it? How do you uh, treat it for long-term storage? What do you intake every day? What do you need for cooking? What do you need for cleaning, right? 
just how much water and how to move it. And then it goes through, it kind of flows through this idea of, okay, you're using sourced, locally sourced water and you have surface water available to you. What are the tools and methods you use to make that water safe? The worst case being all the way down to there's no surface water. You have no way to treat water. You don't have any way to transport water. Now what? Right? The food chapter begins with like how much food to pack calorie wise. Like what are good packing lists for an overnight trip, week long trip? Here's a packing list of food. And it ends with cannibalism, kind of a tongue in cheek, like somewhat of a joke, but it ends in cannibalism. So we've gone from best case to worst case. And it, it flows like that. And I think it flows like that because we norm, you know, people that are outdoor practitioners usually are coming in under best case scenarios. We stop by REI and pick some stuff up. We go to Sportsman's Warehouse and pick some stuff up. Trouble comes later. You know, it doesn't necessarily spring out of nowhere. It's usually because we've made some bad decisions along the way. Well, so the, yeah, let's talk about like sort of general like stuff you can bring. That first chapter you dedicate to like kits that you should bring, like, gear and clothing you should bring in the outdoors. Like, what's your approach to just a basic kit that any person who's going to be out in the outdoors, whether they're hunting or doing a day hike, like what's some good stuff to have with you to make your expedition not comfortable? I mean, it's, it's I mean, but but like, so you're not like having to resort to cannibalism eventually. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. So me and the guys I work with, we all carry like a kit, right? And it's just kind of a term we use. People are familiar with something like called a survival kit. They're familiar with a first aid kit, but this is like, we, we don't precede it with either of those words. This is like a kit, meaning it's everything. I have a little bag. It's like about the size of a coffee mug, maybe a little bit bigger than a coffee mug. And I, and, and that thing comes to me everywhere, man. Like if we go on vacation, we go to Baja every year and spearfish with our kids. Right. And I throw that thing in there. If I'm going on a day hike, I throw it in my bag and it's kind of like my, like thing I always carry with me. And it has stuff from like fire starting kit, water purification system, lots of little single serving meds, insect repellent, sunscreen, a light. Like I have a light that's the size of a couple quarters stacked together. Utility cord, zip ties, compass, whistle, signal mirror, wax dental floss dispenser with a heavy-duty needle, a circle patch kit, all kinds of stuff I keep in there. And then depending on where I'm going, I have other envelopes I add to it. So in my gear, like I have this drawer, right? I keep my kit in there and I also keep all these sort of like auxiliary envelopes. And if I'm going to protect, like let's say it's Southeast Alaska, where it's just like everything's soaking wet, it's impossible to start a fire. I have like a like a extra fire thing. I have an extra med thing. Anything with firearms and stuff, you know, a tourniquet, right? So it's just this thing that I know it like saves a lot of packing chores. When I come home, it's all my essentials. And when I come home, I put that thing away so it's ready to go. And it really reduces my packing list because my packing list is grab that bag and I know what's in that bag. And I don't let that bag get depleted. And it makes it be that it eliminates a lot of that. Oh, no, I forgot my light. Like, it's not. It lives in there. So we explain that approach. And then other other similar kits, depending on like what types of expeditions you're on, other more advanced or specialized kits we get into. But like I said, I, you know, I don't know any serious outdoorsmen, outdoors women that don't have like that being a part of their thing. And so that's where we start the book. Like that's where it all begins, man. So have that kid and that just makes, it makes going out the outdoors a lot easier because you, you have it ready. 
And you feel like, I'm just going to do a hike today. You just peck that up. You don't have to worry. You're like, do I have this? Do I have that? You know you have it. You're out. Yeah, you don't be like, man, I should grab a flashlight just in case something happens. I should grab a, a space blanket. You know, oh yeah, let me go grab a granola bar. I was like, my bag is ready. My buddy could be like, hurry up, quick. Something happened. I'd be like, okay. And I'd grab my bag and out the door. It's a go bag. And I got my stuff. And then, you know, we get into you know, and everything else that you'd expect, right? Like tent selection gear, how to build like a pretty, how to build a very simple bulletproof gear kit. Not like a little kit, but like a, a set of gear that'll get you through 90% of the scenarios you might encounter in North America. And that takes some special understanding. But but like how to put together an assemblage of clothing, footwear, sleeping gear, cooking gear, that you're ready for 90 some percent of environments, locations that you could find yourself in. Well, speaking of clothing, like what's, uh, I mean, it's, of course, it's going to vary based on what you're doing or what, what the climate is like, but like, what does an adaptable clothing kit look like? I mean, what do you recommend for an all around outdoor clothing kit? Yeah. Like I said, if you're trying to meet that 90% thing, you know, start with like Merino, Merino wool base layers. I, I like Merino locks. It doesn't smell, you know, I don't know if you remember, um, Capilene, right? Just it just reeks so bad. It reeks so bad you came you can't even get the BO out of it when you wash it. So like the way merino just stays so comfortable, still keeps some insulating qualities when it's wet. Doesn't start to smell. So starting with merino, then like a good wool or synthetic field pant, then some kind of bulletproof shell pant, like a rain pant. And if you add a very thin, lightweight down pant that you can wear between that you can wear under that shell, which converts it into a snow pant, there you've got granted it's four layers, but like on your legs, you got a merino base layer, a pair of field pants, a pair of puffy pants, synthetic preferably, and a shell. There you are, like I, I like again, ninety some percent of the scenarios you could possibly find your ninety five percent of the scenarios you'd ever find yourself in in this continent, you're comfortable. It's just a great system, and then likewise a similar, you know, similar thinking on tops. And then you get into other camp gear like a tent selection, sleeping pad selection, sleeping bag selection, where you're just ready to go, man. I have kind of a, my main thing, and I keep there's a tote in my garage. I keep everything really organized. My sort of like main stuff like this. Just lives there because I know it. When I pack, I start with that box. I might need to grab a couple other things to specialize, and we cover like, you know, desert conditions, deep winter snow conditions, like things you'd add on. But starts out with this like basic system, which is pretty easy to accumulate, and it, it just makes it that you're ready to roll. You're always going to be. You're always going to be comfortable. You're always going to go in feeling ready to go, feeling prepared. What's your recommendation on sleeping pads? Because I've had, I've been like experimenting with this. I've tried the foam pads. I tried the the air mattress, like for backpacking. And last time I used the air mattress, like it like sprung a leak at like one o'clock in the morning. And mm-hmm. I found myself just cold and on the ground. And then, so I tried a backpacking cot, which was okay, but it was kind of heavy. Like what, what's your yeah. go-to? <laughs> Man, I, uh, I like insulated inflatables. There's some now, like I'm a big fan of ones made by Nemo and I carry patches for it. I used to always carry like the closed cell foam, Z-Rest, Ridge-Rest type things. Right. They're pretty bulky. They're good. They're pretty bulky. When you're on frozen ground, they're not anywhere near ideal. And, 
Yeah, I, I do like the inflatable, but you have to rethink how you manage it. You know, you don't sit out by the fire on it. What I usually carry when it's cold, I, I carry an insulated inflatable and you need to treat it like you need to be gentle with it, man. You don't crawl around on it. You don't go on it with your boots. Like at bedtime, when you're getting ready to, you know, go down for sleep, you inflate that thing and get it on your sleeping bag. And in the morning, you put it away. And then you'll get man, season after season after season out of it. As soon as you start doing stupid stuff with it, sitting on it out by the fire where some hot ember is going to pop and blow a hole in it, you're just going to ruin it. What I carry instead is I take a chunk of a Z-Rest or a Ridge Rest and cut off just about 18 inches of it. And that's like a butt pad or a kneeling pad. And especially if the ground's frozen and there's snow, I carry that. And I use that for sitting out by the fire. I use that for kneeling on in the snow around frozen ground. And it's just a small little thing. And you can just tuck it right, like kind of like tuck it inside your pack. And I use that for all that stuff that is... All that stuff that blows up your sleeping pad, I use that thing instead. And I keep my sleeping pad for what it is. Because it's when the ground's frozen and it gets down, you know, zero degrees below zero in the winter, staying warm is hard to do with a one of those thin closed cell foam pads. So as much as they're indestructible, they leave a little bit to be desired in my view. So in your chapter in water, you have, you know, how to, how to purify it and filter when you're out in the outdoors. But one of the interesting things I, I took away from that was the debate between Camelback and Nalgene bottles. For like, yeah. I've, I've been the Camelback guy, but then you raise like these like objections or the cons of the camel that I've experienced. Like, I'm like, I'm like, wow, these things suck. Like they're leaking all the time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to fill up. And I think after reading this book, I think I'm going to try Nalgene next time I go backpacking like is that what you go to like is, is your go-to the Nalgene yeah. bottle you got married i've lived most of my life in the northern tier states like the big like camelback dudes are all down in like utah arizona right where it's just like a little bit warmer and and, and at times very hot and dry and so hydration is hard you know as you know so like a lot of guys i know that spend time in the in the desert uh where they got to be very mindful about water intake and that's kind of like top of mind all the time they use them. And they're like, yeah, man, they're problematic, but I drink three times as much water. You know, I don't need to stop and get out my water bottle. I'm just sucking water all the time. And so that's what I do. You know, I'm from the North, like the, you know, it's just different. But it seems like every time I'm with someone on a backpacking trip that's using the Camelback, there's always a part of the trip where you go like, hey, is there supposed to be water dripping out of the bottom of your backpack? Um <laughs> And you know, when sleeping bags get wet and down gets wet, it's just hard. I, I just don't like them. I just don't. It doesn't seem bulletproof to me. The hoses freeze up. There's always an issue. I like to use like my water system. My general water system is I use a Steri pen, so UV light to purify water. I use a Nalgene bottle, and I use a MSR Dromedary like a two quart collapsible, heavy, heavy duty fabric bag. And that's my, and I have a plastic cup so that at a little seep or something hard to get into where you can't dip an algae in there, I can scoop it up with a little cup and fill it and purify that way. I'm not filtering. So if there's like debris and stuff, I'm not getting the debris out besides letting it settle, but I'm purifying the water. That system would change depending, but that's generally what I go with for water. Any advice on gear or apps to help people navigate in the wilds a little bit easier? Yeah, there's two things I live by now. I, for a long time, I was a GPS guy and I would use chips, right? 
I would use a Garmin GPS. I always like the Montana 600 and still do, and I own one of them. And you get state-by-state chips that you can load in there. Now, I've just gotten away from it. Now, I use my phone. I use an iPhone 10 with Onyx on it, Onyx Hunt. And on Onyx Hunt, I can download very detailed maps onto my phone where I'm going. And you can download maps five miles wide with like very good detail down to maps that are 100 miles wide or 50 miles wide with lower detail. But it's aerial imagery, or you can toggle back and forth between aerial imagery and classic topo or aerial with topo lines overlaid on it. It works without a cell signal, okay? Because your phone has a GPS functionality built into it, right? So you can go out, you can take a full charge on your phone, put it on airplane mode, run on X maps with the maps that you downloaded of where you're going. Your phone's GPS works and you'll get days worth of battery. I then carry a little external battery, which I can get two more charges off of. And I could have that thing on for days and days running it just like a GPS. It's so much easier to use. That's a good, I'm going to download. I, I'm going to download Dude, that as soon as we get off the, it's like, this conversation. It sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, you pay for it, but it's not expensive. The other thing I use now that I like a lot is I carry a Garmin inReach. And what it is, is you can text. You can text through satellite. So no matter where you are on the planet, right? You can text and this also has an SOS button. You hold that SOS button down for, I don't know what it is, 20 seconds or something. I don't know what it is. You hold the SOS button down, that message is getting out and it's sending your coordinates to someone. You can send pre-planned messages. So you can just type a bunch of messages ahead of time. And every day you say whatever you can say to your husband or wife or whatever, like, Hey, I'm going to text you at five o'clock, man. If I don't text you at five o'clock, something's wrong. And it just sends a pre-planned message. Or you can download an app on your phone. It's called Earthmate. And then you can text using your phone through the inReach. Because if you're using the inReach, you got to do that old style thing where you go like ABC click, right? And multiple clicks to hit every letter. But then you can just type text messages on your phone and it sends it via satellite through the inReach device. And that's been just a, I have kids, you know, I'm married, I have young kids. It's hard being gone. That has been a real, that, that's been a, a, a wonderful tool to have. And, and like I said, I'm like a tech friendly person. I don't like tech to come in and ruin my experience or like create barriers between me and the natural world. But areas where it just comes down to safety and common sense and communication with my family, I'll take it. And, and, and one of the things that makes this book different, just to kind of plug the book is, you know, there's no survival book out there that does any kind of a job dealing with con- like modern tech and its applications for these purposes. And, and this book is exhaustive in it. Another thing you got to be worried about if you spend a lot of time outdoors is eventually you're going to have maybe have some sort of injury, whether that's spraining an ankle because you felt, you know, you tripped over a rock or even more severe ones. What sort of first aid training do you recommend people take before they go out into the wilds? It's, you know, I've done a lot of it, right? I've done wilderness first responder classes. I've done infant CPR. I've done CPR. It's just hard to remember the stuff, man. Whatever you get, I just think you need to continuously brush up on it. And then best practices change in kind of a frustrating way. 
you know, maybe you learned CPR a while ago and they found a better way to do it, but you got to revisit it all the time. Like I, if you tested me right now, tested me on, on the timing and procedures and best practices for everything in the book, I might even fail the test and we did the book, right? It's just something you got to stay up on and study and memorize. I, I learned through this process that I need to do a better job of it myself. Even like the importance of carrying a tourniquet, like where to apply the things. You just got to skim through and refresh your memory. It's hard to memorize all that. Maybe some, you know, some listener of yours has a photographic memory and they don't need to do it. But I've just found that like in reviewing it, I'm like, I mean, I forgot, like I forgot the sequence for CPR, you know? So I, I think it's just something that takes training. You know, I, I mentioned in there, we kind of talked about like a practice or a discipline, right? It's just like learning how to live. It's learning how to to live in a way that you're reinforcing these information sets all the time. No, yeah, these skills degrade. I mean, I've noticed like with me, like I'm not, I, I try to get out, like go camping, backpacking twice a year. And those are the two times a year where I, I, I start a fire with just nothing, you know, just a lighter and whatever I can find out. And every time I feel like I'm relearning how to do this. But I remember when I was a Boy Scout and I was camping like once a month, you know, for multiple nights, like starting a fire, rain, shine. It didn't, I could do it. It was just super easy. Now I'm like almost 40 years old. And like every time I feel like I'm, I'm relearning how to make the wheel when I'm making a fire outdoors. Yeah. You know, I got, I, I met a guy, I'm going to start doing this with my kids. I met a guy that he's got teenagers. Now and then when it's raining, he makes them go out in the yard and start a fire. Right. Cause like, there's a thing I bring up, like, you, you know, there's this whole thing in survival books, right? They always have like the snares and deadfall section, right? And they always have a section about how to start a fire with a bow drill. And I like to point out, you know who knows how to start a fire with a bow drill? People that start fires with bow drills. <laughs> That's who. Yeah. Like, you are not going to, I'm just telling you right now, flat out. If you've never done that, and I took you and dumped you out in the woods. And I told you, hey, man, make me a fire with a bow drill. You ain't going to do it. You are not going to do it unless it's a thing you've decided to incorporate into your skill sets. Right. And I think we try to, in this book, really like point out like which things is like, dude, this is the kind of thing you just got to learn how to do. And in, in a moment of despair is not the time to learn. Right. So yeah, this is something you continually practice. Yeah. You live it like, like, like with wild, with wild edibles, man. Oh like, yeah, I'm geez. in wild edibles just for the sake of wild edibles, right? I like to go out and pick berries. So I'm always, if I see a mushroom, I want to identify the mushroom. If I see a berry, I want to identify the berry all the time, all the time. We're just into it. We go do it for fun. I'll ID mushrooms because I enjoy IDing mushrooms. That kind of stuff pays off. But you wouldn't want to ID mushrooms like the first time when in a survival situation because you might eat something that kills you. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's almost kind of like laughable to think that you've never picked a wild mushroom. You have no idea about wild mushrooms. Now you're like in a situation where you're going hungry in the woods and now you're going to pick it up. <laughs> it's just like, it doesn't work that way. So you're a dad. How, any special considerations that you've thought of or you've, you've learned or picked up along the way as introducing your kids to the outdoors? You know, I'm always really careful about parenting advice. I always kind of want to say like, I won't know for 20 years how I did. I'll just have to see how they turn out, right? But I am comfortable yanking them away from what they're doing and making them engage with nature and making them come out with me even when they don't want to go. And I'm comfortable keeping them out even when tears start to flow 
about cold toes and cold fingers. But with that said, I try very hard to not burn them out. So it's like there's a push and pull there, you know, that, and I learned some looking at my, the way I was brought up. I kind of can't believe that we didn't get burned out. But me and my two brothers that I grew up with, I mean, we're very, very dedicated, you know, and we've got put through a lot, right? So I know you can put someone through a lot and not turn them off to the outdoors. But that's one of the things I wonder about. What is too much? But I, like I said, man, I'll tell them, like, they'll be like, I don't want to go on. I'm like, you're going, you know? And I think that that's probably a good idea. Yeah. You're trying to set a pattern for them for the rest of their life. Yeah. 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 And I don't always ask them what they think. No, right. Well, Steve, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Man, I, I, I would go to, well, if you have Netflix, you can check out Meat Eater on Netflix. But um, I would really like it if people went to our website, themeateater.com, where we have like, a, you know, a whole a, a podcast network, endless stream of articles and videos and how-to information. That's the best place to go engage with Meat Eater. Fantastic. Well, Steve Ronella, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, man. Thank you. My guest today was Stephen Ranilla. His new book is The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, themeateater.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash outdoors, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.